This is Press Publish, a weekly conversation about journalism, technology, and the media business. I'm Josh Benton, director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard, and this is episode 15. My guest today is Matt Thompson. Since earlier this year, he has been a deputy editor of TheAtlantic.com. You might know him from some of his previous career stops. He spent a few years at NPR, heading up some of its most interesting digital initiatives. Maybe you know him from Snark Market, the influential group blog that he led with fellow smart guys Robin Sloan and Tim Carmody. Or you may just know him as a provocative thinker on the shape of modern media. Matt's one of the people behind Notes, a new section The Atlantic launched last month that promises to bring blogging back to The Atlantic. It's an interesting attempt to recapture some of the looser, voicier, more conversational structures of the early 2000s, some of which had been lost in the rise of social media and commercialized online news. We talked about how blogging seeped into the DNA of today's news, whether Wikipediaing the news is still a thing, and how Slack is creating a new context for editorial voice. Here's our conversation. So how long has the new notes section at The Atlantic uh, been in the works? What was the, the impetus behind uh, thinking about starting it? We would had it in mind and had been talking about it for months. Um, I, I, I don't know how soon after the redesign back in April, um, we said that we um, – we wanted to bring blogging back to the Atlantic, but we—it was pretty close. Uh, it was—it was not that long after, um, and um, and we've been talking about it um, ever since. Chris Bodenner um, had joined us earlier in the spring, um, who is the Atlantic's engagement editor um, and has been a a prolific byline on notes, as you've noticed, um, uh, and has been shepherding the. Um, several types of, of coverage there, the track of the day, um, the discussions and running arguments with, with readers and Atlantic writers. Um, um, but he came on board, um, I believe before the redesign, um, before the redesign went live, I should have the timeline in front of me, but, uh, we, from the moment that, that Chris was on board, we knew that, uh, that we wanted to to really bring really bring blogging back um, to the Atlantic. I, it was I got to say when Notes was debuted and he wrote his first intro post and I saw he, his job title was reader editor. Um, I, I asked uh, uh, Joseph Lichterman who wrote the story for us like what the, is that a typo? What is that? What reader editor? What, what kind of title is that? <laughs> Should have a slash in the middle of it. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't sure. Yeah, like yeah, I read things and then I edit them. Like, well, that's sort of what editors do. <laughs> um, so internally, we call Chris the engagement editor, and he uh, he refers to himself on the site, I think, as reader editor. Um, and it, it means directly. It probably sounds a bit ungrammatical. It means directly that he is um, spending most of his time um, discoursing with and and. Uh, editing, following up with um, comments and thoughts from our readers, users, watchers. Choose the term. The no audience. Term the people formerly known as the audience. The people formerly the known as the audience. Exactly. exactly. So, so, so why, why did blogging need to be brought back? Um, at the Atlantic, I, I mean, I, there's a broader issue that we can talk about blogging, uh, you know, beyond the boundaries of, of your dot com. But, you know, what was it? The, the Atlantic, as 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 you guys wrote in your, your intro post, the Atlantic uh, had a lot of its rather remarkable digital growth based on on its success as a blogging platform for uh, a relatively small number of, of high profile folks. Um, why did blog, why did blogging go away? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, and I think John's John Gould's uh, intro post um, on that welcome to notes thread really, uh, it really summarized it well. And you know, I hadn't been here. I joined the Atlantic in January, so um, I had been an ardent fan, but hadn't been inside the machine um, as what we think of as blogging had sort of receded, um, and in its place, what had sprung up. Um, was more polished, more considered work, um, analytical work. Most of the pieces that run through the Atlantic on any given day um, before the launch of notes were just that. They were pieces. They'd gone through a process. They'd been reported. They'd been edited. Um, 
they were something quite different from what you and I know as blogging. Um, and what blogging was at the Atlantic, um, back when, uh, you know, you could have a post that consisted in its entirety of the title, The Golden Horde and the Body, It's Yours. Um, that had just over time sort of receded for all sorts of of reasons. Um, one of them was just the 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 wonderful social tug of um, of the considered Atlantic peace. Um, it was a thing that. Um, we've always been known for it's where you know as a, as a magazine we began um and it <laughs> that has been a form that's continued throughout its life lifetime um blogging when it emerged in its initial incarnations on the atlantic was something newer and it turned out something that when most of the web started uh started receding on that form as well when most of the web when blogging started diminishing elsewhere on the web which you know there was there was an argument over it and there were endless arguments over it is blogging dead um no blogging just took over it suffused the atmosphere um the web as a whole became bloggier to some extent that was of course true um but the the mode of kind of constant touch and connection that blogging represented um, at its heyday, that kind of quietly and slowly, that did kind of diminish everywhere, I think. Um, I mean, obviously, there were a few places that very much kept, that, that, that were blogs, that kept the blog alive and, and thought of themselves very much um, uh, from the beginning to now um, as being in that mode. Um, but the weird cacophony of things that used to compose blogs, um, you started to see more and more of those migrate to status updates and, um, and to, uh, to posts on Tumblr. Um, I think over time, initially, as that started happening, as social media got more uh, popular and then ubiquitous, I think we saw a lot of continuity between what blogging had been and what outlets like Twitter and Facebook, MySpace, Friendster, um, afforded. But then I think there were pieces of what blogging was when it was a stream of thoughts that were kind of collected in a place um, that that we realized belatedly um, were missing um, to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when when the when you guys launched the redesign earlier this year, you know, I, I, I like everyone had observed that same sort of de- decline in blogginess at the Atlantic over over time. And my my initial reaction was, this is so much more. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's also polished and magaziney, and seems to be seem to be more of a bet, a further bet in the direction of polished considered pieces and products. It seemed, it felt like a step away from, from blogginess. Is there any sense in which notes is, is a reaction to the ideas in that redesign as a, in addition to, you know, the large, the longer term trends that we're talking about? There was one idea in that redesign that I think is very continuous with the creation of notes. And, um, you know, I, I, love your reactions to everything and I enjoy your reaction to our redesign um, uh, among <laughs> among the many things by you that I I, I am very happy to have. Um, there's a part of me that wants to do things on the internet so that Josh Benton can re- respond to them. <laughs> um, um, but there's one thing that was embedded in the redesign that I think is easy to miss, which is that the redesign was not only lush and beautiful, filled with large images and um, and uh, and good typography, good you know, custom fonts on the web, um, which is a, a new toy that everyone everyone's been delighting over for the past few years, right? Um, it w- also it allowed us this one basic thing, which was actually I think the most the the most valuable thing about it, which is flexibility. Um, it enabled us to, in a moment, completely change the flow and nature of the homepage um, uh, and 
also to uh, to do things on all of our story pages and indexes um, that could flow, of course, elegantly along mobile and desktop and what have you. Um, but but the flexibility that the redesign gave us that was, I think, one of its biggest assets. Um, it wasn't about it wasn't so much about uh, the particular aesthetic that the redesign reflected large images and lushness and um, and polish um, as about it, the ability to learn from what users did with different approaches to the site um, and respond to them, react to them um, and change the site accordingly. And I think that is very continuous with notes. It's a place for us to try things um, to launch experiments, to do trial runs, see how people respond and do more or fewer of the same. Um, I think the redesign enables that. If you go to the homepage now, you see a notes module, um, which we can move up or down in the flow as we see where people like it most, where people want to find it. Um, and I think that spirit of being able to uh, to try, to listen, to adjust and respond, um, that is continuous with the redesign, with the launch of Notes, with the arrival of Chris Bodenner, all of that. Yeah. I, I'm, so you've, Notes has been up for a couple of weeks now. Uh, have you been able to learn anything from how people are interacting with it? Like one question that comes to my mind is, I have to – I don't know the exact numbers, but for the standard Atlantic article as it existed you know, pre-notes and as it still existed and go away, um, a huge amount of, of any individual article's traffic is going to be reliant on social distribution. Is, that, is it that same phenomenon with note stories? Are you finding more people going to the com slash notes and sort of uh, engaging at the stream level? How, how are people using it? Yeah, part of part of what we did as we were launching notes um, was we um, we sent out a message um, through the Atlantic's social feeds, through our email lists, um, asking for super fans, um, for friends and fans of the Atlantic, um, folks who visit us often, who have a sense of us as uh, as a publication, um, who've been following us for a while. Um, we asked for them to fill out a Google form and tell us a little bit about themselves, where they were, a little demographic information, et cetera. Um, and we, um, we emailed them. We, we actually, as we were designing notes first, um, we emailed a subset of the, the users who'd, who'd filled out the form. About th- more than 3,500 people responded to the call. Um, and so we filtered the list of folks who were nearby and we brought a few of them in as we were testing designs for notes. Um, you know, this is, <laughs> this is not a new thing. Um, media organizations, I think, have, have cottoned onto the value of, of testing um, with users, testing prototypes with users um, um, as a block. Um, but this was something that we did with notes. We did two rounds of in-person tests. And then as we were launching the section, we actually emailed the full list of folks. And we asked them for three things. What were, you, what were the three to five um, most compelling notes? We asked them to, to email as often as they could over the course of the first week. What were your f- for the three to five most compelling notes that you saw? What, um, what would you want to see more of or what, what do you see missing that you'd like to see? Um, and what did you find less compelling? Um, and so we've had this this one flow um, of folks who've been coming back, um, people who have actually been taking the time to email every day um, and say what they loved, what they loved less, what they want to see more of. Um, so that's been one input. Um, and that is an audience. I think we still, um, there are some basic questions like, you know, there are some notes that in shape and substance and approach um, aren't all that different from a kind of now classic um, or I guess uh, now standard Atlantic Post. Um, and so one basic question, um, does um, does the social web um, react the same way to um, to equivalent things in substance and shape um, for uh, uh, that are notes as they do to Atlantic Post? That's a question that we're asking. Um, 
and have no answer to. Um, another question, um, what's the best way, um, what's the best way to bring people back um, to notes? What's the best way to promote notes? What's the best way to orient folks when um, they arrive at a note from the social web or from elsewhere on the site um, and help them understand <laughs> where they are and what we're doing there? Um, those are all questions that we're still, um, we're still figuring out. But um, there have been, you know, a few a few standout notes. I think, um, and 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 some that have uh, <laughs> are very continuous with sort of what we know about the behavior of our users around the site. Um, for example, um, Tanahasi Coats, um, the uh, inimitable Tanahasi Coats, um, has a posse. Um, this is true. <laughs> his, his, he built his posse um, wonderfully in his uh, initial days um, blogging at the Atlantic from 2008 on, um, and um, and by and large, folks are as interested and as delighted to hear what he has to say in notes as uh, as they are elsewhere on the site. Yeah, I, it's interesting. One of my reactions from reading it over the last couple of weeks has been how. How a lot of the, the the stuff on notes has been less bloggy than I kind of anticipated. You know, the, mm. the, the the pieces have been a little bit longer and a little bit more shaped like like a piece. It, you know, it, it's interesting. You know, we uh, I, I look back on the Matt Thompson tag page on Neiman Lab, and you've been on the site twenty five times, dating back to two thousand and nine. <laughs> and throughout that time, an issue that you've been very interested in and that I've been interested in too is. You know the the article form. What is the what is the 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 shift that it might take once it is you know taken out of the production uh, constraints and and definitions of of you know say print media. What, what's the, the shape that an article can take? And it does seem, despite all the talk that uh, folks like you and me had back in the early, there's 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 such a pull to the classic. Article now, the classic article means something different now than it did 15 years ago because there are things like linking and things that have sort of been absorbed into the into the medium. But I know on Neiman Lab I, over the years, I've tried to think how can we create ways for us to you know create permission structures for shorter content. You know, we have these things called link posts, which have a different kind of headline that are meant to be, hey, here's this quick thing you might be interested in. And every time, and we have uh, we've tried a different a few different ways. And every time they start off being short and bloggy and they just expand out into articles, <laughs> it seems like <laughs> there's this path that they all follow is, have you thought, are you thinking differently about, or have, how has your thinking about the classic article change? It seemed like there was a period maybe five years ago when everyone was ready to just murder it and saying <laughs> it was this, this terrible artifact of, of this distribution method and this production ideology but it's damn persistent. It's funny. I mean, I do think that there is part of uh, part of the the analysis. I'm, okay, so you can read the "is blogging dead" debate a few different ways, right? And the different approaches to it. Um, there's a strain of it that's just like actually a visitor to the internet transplanted from you know peak newspaper in 1969 um would uh would recognize a standard post on any you know sort of highly socially webbed media site today um as being close and akin derivative in form and function to um to the things that that she would see in her her daily newspaper um and then there's an argument that the um, that several of the elements of of blogging, the looseness, the generosity about um, about including and responding to and discoursing around thoughts of others, um, the the ethic of block quoting, the um, and linking and attributing, the um, the conversational nature of it, that those things just sort of flowed into the way that we write now. Um, and that it's seeped beyond even the internet that you you read coverage in in other media and they feel bloggier um, um, magazines feel bloggier um, and then there's a version of it that that uh, that says no actually these things that we recognized as blogging the whole culture of you know rss feed linking and um and aggregating the the notion of um what i used to call the sully lead um a reader writes 
colon block quote, um, uh, that those things sort of diffused, they, they disappeared, um, or they, you know, they exist in some small part, but they were largely routed by, um, by what, <laughs> the forms that were more familiar and more longstanding. Um, and I think that, you know, all of those things are, in, are actually to, to, to some extent true. Um, I, I, I do think that there is much more permissiveness now around what we call the classic form. When you talk about permission structures for shorter stuff, um, there, I actually do think that um, the internet has cl- inclined towards more permission for things that are weird, um, that are personal, that are um, that are bloggy in all sorts of ways, from their length, from their voice and approach. Um, we block quote ubiquitously in stories now, um, and of course, link. Um, it would not be weird to see that a reader writes colon block quote convention in the middle of what you might call a classic story where that would have been weird 10 years ago. Right. Right. Um, so I think some of it is um, we think of as the classic form has actually subtly evolved into something bloggier all along. I think that that is absolutely true. Um I also, though, think that part of that tug just is the tug of um, of the social web and um, which is, you know, still quite as recent um, in its own way. Um, I mean, depending on what you what you consider as being part of the social web, because some folks include blogging in that in that broad canvas and some folks don't. Um, I think what's been interesting about the web, um, there's this, um, I like to make the joke that, um, the internet is now big enough that you can be weird at scale, right? Hmm. Um, that, uh, there is a guy who, um, I pay a certain sum to a couple times every month to, um, to blog or to write, not blog, to write long, heavily researched, uh, uh, pieces on old Infocom text adventures every month on Patreon. Like, and that, that dude, every time he writes a post gets like a couple hundred bucks, um, from a, a community of anonymous people who somehow found him, who I, I would have to guess like me, um, are, were back in the day, giant junkies of Infocom text adventures and really enjoy the excavations that he's been doing of that little kind of weird random slice of culture. Hmm. Um, and that can now exist on the internet. And so many, many more things can exist on the internet. A, um, a photo and, and many more things can kind of, can find a life and an audience on the internet. A photo can go absolutely viral. This like random blue and gold or black and blue, I don't remember the colors, <laughs> dress, um, can, uh, white and gold, black and black and blue. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, can, I think people travel. said blue and black just to avoid the, the bruise connotation, but yeah. <laughs> um, those things can travel um, uh, insane distances. Um, and so when you talk about permission structures, I think that's exactly it. I think we have to sort of we, – we constantly have to both um, uh, psych ourselves out in order to – and also um, uh, give ourselves – places, sandboxes um, in which to try things because the internet's appetite um, is rapacious and weird and random and goes in every single direction. It goes towards long stories. It goes towards paragraphs. Um, It goes towards animated GIFs, (laughs) you know. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's tough. On one hand, I feel like the the phenomenon we're describing is also – the the sort of natural outcropping of i mean blogging did not evolve in the context of uh for profit publishing entities right blogging evolved out of individuals and um often nerdy individuals who had uh, a certain amount of of tech savvy and were willing to deal with rss readers and who formatted their their new their media consumption online around you know personalities and link and link blogs and and things like that it, it seems like uh, on one hand, you've had 
a lot of that blogging activity pulled into places like the Atlantic or, or, or plenty of other places that that have taken some of the lessons and some of the forms and some of the voice, um, but nonetheless have a desire and a, you know a fundamental need to monetize that, and that leads to. I would maybe uh, this sort of shifting towards something closer to an article because an article that has a headline that has some substance is the kind of thing that can be shared more readily and and then you know it's it's the kind of thing that you can put ads around the kinds of things that you can imagine um, reaching an audience in the, in that way and that sort of becomes separate from this or at least separated from this world of. Uh, of true weirdness, the kind of weirdness that you're describing, which, which often I think is taking place outside of the, the contemporary online ad economy. Either it's taking place on a platform, a place like Twitter, where the, the, the scale of the, of, you know, of enormous size is, is what matters. Um, or it's taking place in an environment like Patreon or as, you know, the, the, the remaining passion projects they would have the, it's it seems it feels like in a weird way, and I don't know. I'm I'm kind of making this up as I go along too, but mm. it feels like the the energy that was you know in the early 2000s directed towards blogging used to be on the non-commercial side of the register, and as it's transitioned to being much more on the commercial side of the register, it's left this great weirdness over here, but it's also sort of taken the form and and pulled some things out of it that that maybe aren't as pleasing to you know a, a 39 year old man who's been on the web for a while for a while well let's throw let's throw two other things into the mix for a second because i'm also i'm curious how their you know possible rise um although contested in its scope um plays into uh to this assessment um so over the past couple of years um um you will have heard um a lot of um, a lot being made of the rise of podcasting, <laughs> sure. of course, um, and um, and for a while um, you uh, for a while now you would also have been heard much being made of the um, the ascendance or reascendance of the email newsletter. Right. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me is how kind of weirdly bloggy in form both of those things are absolutely um um there are there are these traces and you actually sort of find them less uh, or at least i i shouldn't say you (laughs) that presumptuous you i actually find them less these days on facebook and twitter where i've come to expect a certain type of output um and a certain type of output that is shaped actually a surprising amount by the um, by the platforms um, and their choices and their algorithms. Um, there are these other approaches to storytelling over time um, and to building a stream um, that I see happening in podcasts and in this profusion of individually authored email newsletters um, that feel so much to me like – blogging felt in some ways. Right. I think that's, that's completely, completely right. And they, they share so many characteristics. One of the, you know, you know, I'm just looking right now at uh, the archive.org version of the Atlantic homepage in, in 2011. And the, the fact that, you know, blogging uh, at the Atlantic at that point was so completely structured around, you know, voices. That was the name of, of, of the section. I'm seeing, you know, Andrew Sullivan, Megan McArdle, Tanahazi, James Fallows, Jeffrey Goldberg, it was very much – I mean I remember my reading of the Atlantic's blogs back then and other blogs and it was focused around I want to know what, what James Fallows is thinking right now. I, I'm curious you know, what, what does Tanahasi have to say today and that sort of personal connection is something that an email newsletter provides. That's something that a podcast can provide even if it's not a personal connection. Like I don't think my relationship with you know, the, the court's daily email is, is personal but it's, it's, it's a strong – brand connection and i say that without any of the evil that sometimes gets associated with a brand uh, it, it is very much just like tell me as an individual what I, what i need to know and that's something that the the social web uh both completely 
obliterates by making every article the, the, the point of every URL, the, the point of sharing as opposed to a stream, but at the same time completely amplifies because I follow people on Twitter for exactly that same reason because I am interested in the world as they're seeing it. Yeah. Um, it, and I, I am in danger of taking so many alleyways at all the smart things that you just said, but I'm going to focus in on this one piece of it. Um, um, I think that there is a dichotomy um, and I think that's, that this is true of many endeavors. I think that making the medias is one of them, um, but I think it's true also of making art or making music or, or writing code. Um, there's this uh, – there's a tension between these two things, both of which are valuable. One of them is scale or reach, um, uh, the access to a vast and wide – audience um and one of them is love um and if you talk to my my conferences here at the atlantic um um they would instantly at this point in the conversation start rolling their eyes because i i think about this and i talk about this all the time um scale and love the relationship and the tension between the two um and i do think i do think that there is a tension but i think for media organizations you kind of have to have both games right you got to have a scale game and you got to have a love game um, um, you have to attend to both. You have to be thinking about, on the one hand, your media organization, and for most of us, part of our purpose is to have a, a big megaphone, um, to reach a, a broad and diverse set of people, um, and to reach them with stories and information that ostensibly can bridge perspectives, um, can incite action, can enlighten folks, um, can introduce people to one another. All that sort of falls to me under the, under the, under the purview of, of scale. And you've also, I think, you've got to have a love game. This is the one that I think is easier in the short term to neglect. Um, but I think in the long term, it's just as important. It's, uh, it's, it is money in the bank. It, it accrues dividends over time. Um, having and cultivating a sort of love um, – and connection um, is uh, there are all sorts of things that you can do with that connection. Um, and I think some of the most powerful things on the internet still, and one of the things that's always been true is that that the, the persistence and the power of that connection um, is tremendous. Um, um, and I think we see this in a lot of forms in a lot of places. Patreon is one of them. Um, today, um, and you know, we could have a whole separate podcast on um, on the the sort of subtle shifts, subtle and significant shifts in um, in thinking about about paying for work um, be uh, between Kickstarter and Patreon. I I think that the love game is really interesting, <laughs> um, and for us, notes is kind of transparently and uh and nakedly part of that game um the redesign was too you know i often um i i sometimes juxtapose these two things that happen at once um in our world or, or pretty close in time to one another um one week um we launched this redesign this lush beautiful very sort of high brand fidelity redesign um with our own custom fonts and what have you and just a few weeks later we were one of the launch partners on on facebook instant um one of those things is part of our love game one of those is part of our scale game um the divide is not total ideally these two these two strategies should reinforce one another um but there is also a tension between them yeah you know i was uh before our, our conversation today, I was looking back through through our archives and I found an article that um, Martin Langeveld, uh, who used to write for us, uh, did in 2009 about a conference you ran uh, uh, on the future of context. And uh, one of the one of the things he mentions there is the then newish idea of, of Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans, the idea that you're going to have a core audience that is going to have such a deep affection for you and connection with you that – they're probably going. They're going to be an outsized portion of of your business model, or you know the the way that the bills get paid. 
as opposed to the the giant scale business. You're right. I mean that that same dichotomy plays out in all sorts of different forms of media, and it's you know sort of def- sort of baked in with uh, sort of power law distribution that the internet provides. Yeah. One element of of that connection is personality driven. As I said, that you know it. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates or, or James Fellows or, or, or others, uh, that connection that a reader has with, I, I like this person's perspective and I'm, I'm interested in that. One thing I noticed on, on notes is that the individual writers are not played up in a way that, you know, they had been in the earlier iteration of, of voices. It's not, you know, here's a nice picture of Matt and here's an easy way to subscribe to Matt's updates. And here, you know, it's, it's, it's it's very much the voice of the Atlantic at, at the same time that you have people like Fallows and others chiming in and, you know, that has a different sort of tone to it. How did you think about the individual personality and persona versus the Atlantic's personality and persona? You know, one of the, one of the interesting inputs into the process of creating notes um, – for all of us, I think was Slack, which is this other weird thing, right? Um, Slack's going to eat us all. Slack is going to eat us all. It, it, it um, Slack is crazy to me. It's delightfully crazy. I was, um, um, if you ask any of my erstwhile colleagues at NPR, I was a big proponent of trying to get as many of our divisions on the Slack as I could. Um, at NPR and, and uh, now I'm at the Atlantic where the team already was on Slack. Thank, thanks, my predecessor, Alexis Madrigal. Um, and um, it's this delirious, delightful, really interesting um, place. Um, interesting technology too. I'm super intrigued by um, by all the dynamics behind Slack and, you know, Stuart Butterfield and Game Never Ending and the fact right. that Matt Howie from Metafilter is there now. Like all of that stuff fascinates me just as, you know, someone who geeks out on the internet and its eras. But one of the inputs into thinking about what vibe we wanted to to evoke with notes um, was Slack, um, was this really rich, robust, lovely, interesting, fun, funny, informative, insightful, newsy conversation um, that was happening among all of these people um, in this place. Yeah, it's interesting to see as more publications since, I mean, the the media – Collectively, the online media is probably Slack's largest customer. As a as in, in terms of industry mind share, everybody seems to be on on Slack in our little world. And as more and more places start creating content out of Slack, they say, "Well, this is an edited version of a Slack discussion." Um, it, it's an interesting insight into some very different approaches to. I think so. Gawker publishes these sorts of things, and they they they. They're pretty much what you would expect a Gawker internal chat to be versus 538, which does the same thing. Um, but it seems like their Slack is a strange place where everyone speaks four paragraphs at a time. <laughs> right. it, it's going it, to – I think we're going to have a – you know, in five years, we'll be talking about the ways in which online content has been shaped by Slack. Uh, I mean five years. We might be in five months. We're talking about that. Yeah. I mean but one, one, of, the, one of the basic questions um, – so two questions. Um, uh, one, how do you um, how do you most productively evoke um, that that vibe? It's a place where I think we all. And it's funny that I describe it as a place. At some point, I, I need um, Adrian LaFrance or Rob Meyer to explain to me um, when and how we think of the internet as in in spatial metaphors. But. Um, uh, when um how do you how do you evoke the vibe of that place productively um for someone who's not in it another question um um would it be cool to invite um people who like us and are interested in the way that we process the world um into this conversation in some part um that that was i think the first question i mean i think we asked that question and i think Several of us said, yeah, it actually – I mean this, um, this discourse that's happening right here is something it, – it's very sort of fundamentally and deeply Atlantic-y. Um, and how lovely would it be to be able to bring um, our fans and friends and followers into, into that chat, to that conversation in some part? Um, so how do you do that productively? I think that's 
um, part of what we're trying to figure out with notes. Um, but I do think that that um, that there's a sense, and I don't think that it's just ours, that there is some value to that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, parts of notes do feel like uh, the, the back channel conversation that would be happening between Atlantic editors and that that a feels very group bloggy it it feels snark markety it feels uh you know it feels like a lot of a long tradition of of group blogs one of the one of the elements that uh you've always been very interested in is is tool building around um these editorial products i think back to your time on on argo at at npr the what we're reading section of neiman lab is actually run on a modified version of the argo links plugin that you guys <laughs> created some years ago um and i know one of the things that struck me as the most technologically interesting about notes was uh the threading of of conversations and around specific topics uh, can you talk a little bit about why you thought that was important and and how you've how it is has worked in the real world. I'm curious if you find people actually using that sort of navigation or, or wayfinding method. Yeah. Um, the, um, we think of threads. I mean, threads are one of the, uh, um, we refer to them internally as threads, but almost nowhere, um, <laughs> on this site, do we refer to them as as such? Um, just because you know already we're kind of exposing enough of our internal uh, mental architecture <laughs> and calling these things notes. Uh, um, we don't want to go too crazy down the the rabbit hole. Um, but um, we did want a way um, to just have an ongoing conversation that both made sense for. Um, folks who were following with it in the classic, um, I am, you know, addicted to this section and I've been, um, just tracking the whole conversation here over time, um, made sense both to them and to folks who were coming into it blind. Um, and there were a lot of, there were a lot of, uh, topics that we knew we would imagine covering over time, um, or, um, or covering in this fashion where it's sort of ongoing stream um, uh, thread of coverage and we wanted to um, to be able to to situate folks in the context of it right away um, uh, there there were a few actual um, types of stories that we'd been um, that we'd created that um, uh, that were inspirations for Threads. One of them is uh, David Graham's presidential cheat sheet. Um, you'd probably see that on um, the homepage today if you were to visit it. Um, um, the twenty-six—it's called the twenty sixteen presidential cheat sheet, um, and it was um, basically it was this story um, that that. Uh, David had written back in January um, as the candidate field for the 2016 presidential election, uh, U.S. presidential election was starting to get crowded. Um, and he, um, you know, many, it's, it's not a, a new type of thing. Many news organizations have done this type of post. Um, but it was it was just an overview of the field um, who uh, we expected to declare and um, uh, which party they were in when we expected them to declare, et cetera, what the what their their prospects might be, um, and when um, a second candidate declared, we'd said instead of writing a whole new thing, let's update the cheat sheet um, and um, write through it um, and refashion it accordingly. And we found ourselves doing this every time a candidate declared or, or someone's status vis-a-vis -vis the election changed. Um, when we were designing notes. Um, one of the things we wanted to do was sort of enable a system where that that process could happen more organically, where it wasn't like, oh, hey, wait, we wrote about this thing. Let's go back to that thing that we wrote and um, and update it once again with this new thing that we're adding on to it. Um, but actually just um, sort of let that happen more on the fly um, as well as being planned um, some, sometimes in advance. Um, there's some stories where you can anticipate that that's going to happen. It, um, I think the day we launched Notes um, uh, was the day of another um, tragic headline in the migrant crisis that's unfolding in Europe. Um, and 
and we knew at that moment there is enough of a drumbeat of news on 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 this on this issue that we should treat it as such as an ongoing story that we're covering over time um uh, this, of course, I mean, the, the form of notes um, is one of the things that's pretty continuous with some of the thinking that, that you alert, uh, alluded to in the, the my future of context era. <laughs> I, I like to think of that as, as an era. You know, <laughs> but I mean, that's looking back and, and remembering that the name of your, your when you were an RJI fellow, the name of your project was Wikipediaing the News. Uh, on, on one hand, the appeal of that idea is obvious. I read more Wikipedia than I probably read any other website on the internet. Uh, it's maybe not Gmail, I don't know. But uh, at the same time, uh, the rise of, of socialists sort of meant that those things can be sometimes pretty hard to share. And uh, I, I sometimes wonder, as exciting as uh, future of context sort of stuff is Wikipedia the news and Vox cards and, you know, all the various iterations of that, the idea that we want to get away from having a, a, a single discrete article that's published today because it's what happened in the last 24 hours and we'll publish another one tomorrow and another one tomorrow until we all die. Like the, 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 the appeal of getting away from that is obvious. I just wonder sometimes whether that is the degree to which the, there's audience demand for that, that matches up with the with the sort of contemporary publishing economy because I can understand the appeal of it so readily from journalists who want to create new products and want to create new ways of of getting into news and you know want to create new ways of serving their audience better but in in the same way that i it seems like the article form has has been stubbornly uh persistent uh it, it, I wonder. You know, it's slightly different, but you look at something like Circo, which uh, has lots of interesting ideas and, and, and nonetheless seem to not connect with an audience in a, in a real way. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the funny things about it is is just as you say, I mean, it, there are all sorts of interesting sort of snippets of evidence around this. So on the one hand, we treated – uh, David Graham's presidential cheat sheet. Before notes came along, we treated presidential cheat sheet as an Atlantic article. It more is like a Wikipedia article almost. Um, we edited it when new developments transpired. Um, we and we posted the update. I will say every time um, another development happens, another candidate um, steps in um, or drops out, which has not happened very much. So far, um, it's um, that story is really valuable to people. Um, uh, when I look at the um, at the data on Parsley, when that story is sort of rising again in the ranks, when it shows up again um, among our most popular stories on the site, um, I see people are asking the question: Who is running for president in 2016? Um, and they're finding this thing, um, which is a, a valuable, nicely written. Um, uh, overview. Um, I, I think just as you say, the demand for that type of approach to some stories that that uh, that take a particular shape um, is actually significant. Um, I think the question that we've been trying to figure out is um, as um, as writers of this stuff and as folks who um, who write some mix of new things and new thoughts on old things every day, um, uh, how do we best do it? What are the best sorts of structures? How, how does technology sort of aid us in that form? Um, the wiki is a weird technology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and the technology that powers Wikipedia, the structures that power Wikipedia itself are weird and old and kind of Byzantine and haven't quite been replicated and have problems of their own, of course, but there is a demand for that thing, right? Um, um, but I think we haven't, I, I, I don't think, I think you're right that we haven't yet figured out um, and we will probably keep questing for um, how do we do that um, in a way that feels both organic um, consistent and, and, and valuable to an audience. Yeah, I think it's it's true that there certainly are stories for which um, a more contextualized approach uh, makes sense. I mean, the presidential candidates would, would be one. I think of Vox Media's story streams and how 
you know, on a day that Apple announces eight new products like they're about to do, uh, it makes sense for The Verge to write eight different stories about each of those products and then to do one story stream that j- gathers them all together. And I, I, I just like you think it, it's, 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 I, I worry, I worry is maybe a bit strong. I, I wonder the degree to which the sort of burst of dopamine or serotonin, I, I'm not up on my brain science, the, 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 the little flash in your brain that goes off when you see something new, new, um, sort of the, the secret to social media in a, in a certain sense, this ever never ending stream of stuff being, being put thrown at you uh, that it's both traumatic and, and thrilling at the same time. And, in the same way that even though we're not confined by daily publication schedules or nightly broadcast schedules, the here's something new, here's something new, here's something new still has enormous amount of power. I think that's true. I also think um, – I, I mean do you ever find yourself though um, uh, for various stories – and a story is is running wild on the internet. This happened to me um, yesterday when um, when Walter – Palmer, the um, the Minnesota dentist who became notorious for killing Cecil the Lion, um, gave an interview to the Star Tribune and recovering it. Um, and I found myself wondering what was like the definitive piece of journalism that was done on big game trophy hunting. Um, do you ever find yourself wondering that? I mean, I find myself wondering like, what's the story behind that? If if there on a regular basis, I will get to the end of the day and there will be something that I saw mentions of on Twitter. And I think, what was the deal with that? Like, you know, I had sort of constant partial attention. I don't really know. And then I will often, if it's, I mean, if it's a politics story, I'll often find myself going to Vox.com because I know that they will have the a sort of obligatory explainer that, that contextualizes that. If it's a bigger issue, then I'll go to Wikipedia and, and, and find that. I find myself less frequently wanting to say, what is the one defining piece of journalism uh, produced about a given subject because I guess I I don't know if I believe in on on stories like this I don't know if I believe in the one defining piece of journalism anymore. No, I think I think that's quite true and that's a good corrective uh, to what I said. It's less about sort of what is the one defining piece of journalism and more just like what is a story that can actually that I can sink into about this um, that can give me and, and it's not an, it, for me at least it's not an explainer in impulse. Um, I I. I thought it was and I think that that's part of it. Um, but for me, that's not the entirety of it, um, of, of what I'm sometimes looking for. And um, obviously Wikipedia pages on topics catch fire for a variety of reasons, one of which is that they are heavily uh, preferenced in search, that the structure of it um, uh, it plays very nicely for Google. Um, people don't share Wikipedia pages um, even though they find themselves to them. But there is um, there there is this thing that happens, and it happens on the social web too. Um, there's a rush of attention to something, um, to a subject. Like let's say Cecil Lyon. I'll be really curious to see if this morning's um, Radio Lab episode on the Black Rhino Hunt, which is terrific, by the way. Um, um, and is pretty much on exactly this topic of big game trophy hunting and the um, the um, the trade-offs and the on-running argument about conservation versus um, uh, versus uh, hunting and, and whether there's actually a dichotomy between the two or there's a virtuous cycle between the two of them. Um, I'm curious to see whether that story uh, gets um, at as much attention as the Cecil the Lion uh, um, story did. But I do think that there is this impulse or this thing that happens um, – Sometimes months after an event that's been big in the news, when um, when someone launches a significant um, work of journalism, narrative or otherwise, um, that addresses it, and all of a sudden it's like you see this light bulb going off a- along the social web. It's like, ah, this is the thing that you need to read to understand this. Right. Um, and it's not just an explainer phenomenon. It's an immersion phenomenon. It's like this is someone who's gone deep into this topic or who's been following it for a long time um, and is laying it out in this complex and interesting way. I mean that, that's that's part of it. I, I think it's also something else that blogging did really well, which was framing current events in the format of an argument, right? I mean I, I find that a lot of times it takes someone who is willing to just who, – who has a – 
a stance on something. You know, it may be a stance I agree with or I don't agree with, but the fact that the the framing is a a powerfully argued piece about X um, can do a lot that um, you know, sort of classic neutral journalism may not always be able to do, and. and that also feels native to, to cycle it back to, to blogging that, you know, the sort of strongly argue, argued stance was something that blogging did did really well and provides that sort of framing for for further discussion or, hey, look at this. You got to you got to read this piece on Medium or whatever it may be. Yeah. And I think part of it is I, I think part of it is argumentation. I do think that we've general in general um, we've chilled a lot. I mean, the media has um, about uh, the divide between um, argumentation and perspective and um, and quote unquote objectivity. <laughs> um, um, I think there's I, I, in general, I've seen a lot of um, uh strong journalism that also has um, a clear perspective. I think I've seen more of that. Um, but I don't think that its perspective um, – I, I think that its perspective is or isn't ancillary depending on the individual piece. Its perspective is or isn't an ancillary to the strength of its journalism. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't sort of um, trace the interest in these things back necessarily to – um, oh man, this is someone writing the sort of definitive, um, uh, strongly argued think piece take on um, on this subject. Um, I, I, I think in some in some significant um, number of cases, I feel like I'm seeing um, strongly reported um, as well as uh, as um, well told stories um, uh, really traveling and finding their audience. Yeah. I was thinking when I was looking back through things that we'd written about uh, about you in the past. It was it's always interesting now that Neiman has been around for uh, about seven years to, to to go back and see how different things were in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, yeah. and how in a lot of ways the 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 news web that we sort of take for granted at, at today would would seem radically odd <laughs> from from that perspective. Um, you've you've in the past done some some predicting of, of the future. Like I want to ask you to say what things are going to look like in five years, but you know, what are the, what are the directions that you find most interesting that you think could influence the, the way that, you know, digital news and online news happen going forward? Like we've only mentioned mobile devices, I think once or twice in, in this conversation. And I, that seems to be, uh, I don't want to say the elephant in the room, but it's, it's a, a huge transformative force that I think is just being, Bear, has been barely ingested by the news ecosystem. But what, what do you think are the, the factors that are going to be influencing how how this looks when when, when we talk again in, in a couple of years? Um, no, I think that's absolutely right. I do think that um, the fact that we now have these ubiquitous, very, very personal devices um, um, through which we see much of this stuff um, and interact with much of this stuff, um, I think – um, changes the equation um, in several key ways. For me personally, it's meant that um, I, <laughs> I I did this thing um, uh, when I was at NPR. I found myself wanting to listen more. I found myself in the weird position of um, I, I lived almost around the corner from NPR. I lived very close to it. And so for the first time in a while, I had basically no commute, um, which meant that I was listening much, much less, um, and I, um, and so I had to actually invent and kind of wedge into my day opportunities to listen. I made myself listen, like you know, from the moment I woke up, <laughs> um, as I was, you know, go- walking to lunch and what have you. Sort of a pair of headphones was always affixed to my head, and I was always listening to um, news and information, um, usually from NPR. Um, um, after um, after I left NPR and joined the Atlantic, I found um, I still had all of this listening time, and I'd trained myself on all of these habits um, uh, to listen um, pervasively. And um, and all of a sudden, I felt um, 
I felt like I could listen to many more things <laughs> and I was I was suddenly interested in many more things. Didn't have to be a company man anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I still love I still love me some NPR. I love me some pop culture happy hour. But I um but so I filled this listening time with with all of these podcasts um which are um which are interesting to me now and it's interesting to consider the shape of them because they are um in some ways um, what they do remind me again uh, 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 of some of the things that blogging did 10 years ago. But what's notable about them, um, and I think this is true of everything, um, I think that there will be more. If I look into the future, um, one thing that I do think is true um, is there will absolutely be more hits. And there will be trends and themes that everyone making media um, should be paying attention to. Um, but I also think that there are going to be more different types of things, um, uh, more different smaller bands of people. It's astonishing to me when you look at when – I, when I think about it, I mean the podcasts are fully mobile. Um, they are fully enabled by the fact that I'm always walking around with a smartphone. Um, and they're deeply personal in the way that smartphones are. Um, and it astonishes me when I go into the iTunes store and there are like three dozen walking dead response podcasts. <laughs> um, and some of those are just pure, um, pure love, <laughs> um, pure, like, you know, a dozen friends are like listening to their other two friends take on the latest walking dead episode. Um, and they've got like no audience and no prospects of ever, you know, being a kind of remunerative commercial success. Um, and it is a good, it is a good reminder whenever I see that, how much of the internet is that, um, and I think that that's a really important thing for people who make media um, to keep in mind. The the the, the things that we make um, um, have been and will continue to be um, overwhelmed, dwarfed um, by the things that people make for one another um, and the value that they place on those things. Um, and I think it's really I, I think I think it's important for us to think about our, our, our audiences in that way, too, um, that we're making things for people and not just making things for an under, undifferentiated stream. You got to make a pretty good argument to say, hey, um, you should stop listening to your buddy talk about The Walking Dead. You should read this article about Syria. It's got yeah. to be a strong take, a strong argument. Yeah. And, and also when you say you should read this argument article about Syria, I think um, I think it, it becomes more important. Uh, it, it continually important for you to have an understanding of, of who that you is. Yeah, I want to I want to sidestep the questions about how Vox executes on its strategy or the merits of Vox's strategy or what have you, and just narrow in on this one thing that Ezra Klein said that I thought was actually really canny and really empathetic of the way certainly that I consume media. He said, you know, um, um, journalists are going to look at this work and they're going to say. Oh man, this has already been written. They're gonna they're gonna evaluate the work that we do um, in all these ways that speak to journalists and are about the way that journalists and the media sort of valorize, um, value, um, and decide the merits of, of their own work. Um, if we do a lot of work that journalists roll their eyes at and say, you know, I've already seen this, um, we will actually have done our jobs. We are. Make, not making this for them. And I think it has shown in uh, the general response to Vox and its success um, uh, oh, oh, an actual audience interest in, um, in at least what they're trying to do. I, I think that that's right. And, and if there's one thing that I think uh, news organizations – there's one piece of advice. It's it's stop creating content for yourselves and just realize that you're here to serve an audience. There, that's that's what your purpose is, and that's also luckily the way that you achieve some sort of business success is having an audience that you're serving that appreciates what you're doing. Yes, um, and and on some level, I think valuing them. But yeah, thank you for saying that. That is the that is the kind of the the actually pithy um, thing that I was trying to drive at. 
Uh, well, Matt, as always, it's a it's a terrific pleasure to to talk with you and to and to hash out these deep philosophical issues that uh, <laughs> we have we have spent uh, the last uh, decade or so of our careers thinking about. Maybe we'll figure out a solution at some point. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I I doubt it. Well, that's episode 15 of Press Publish. Hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Matt for the conversation. You can find him on Twitter at mtomps, M-T-H-O-M-P-S. You should also check out The Atlantic's notes at theatlantic.com slash notes. I love a logical URL. If you like our show, I hope you'll subscribe. You can find the link to our feed at presspublish.org or just look for us on iTunes. And if you like the show, a positive review there helps us out a lot. The Neiman Journalism Lab is a project of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University, home of the Neiman Fellowships, Neiman Reports Magazine, Neiman Storyboard, and much more. Find us at neiman.harvard.edu. This episode was recorded at Walter Lippmann House. Walter Lippmann, who said, It requires wisdom to understand wisdom. The music is nothing if the audience is deaf. Our theme music is Missing You by Trash 80. Check back next week for another episode of Press Publish, but until then, always remember... Disrupt yourself before someone else disrupts you. Mm-hmm.